You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the conference finals. We've made it. Cody, it was a scintillating and sensational conference semifinals. We just wrapped up over the weekend. We're recording this on Monday. So yesterday we had two game sevens, two other series wrapped up in six games last week. The final four is set. And before we get to your emotional state, after the Milwaukee Bucks valiantly went down in seven games against the Boston Celtics. We'll talk a little bit about those series and look forward. I just want to level set for everyone listening right now that the 2022 NBA champion will either be the Miami Heat, the Boston Celtics, the Dallas Mavericks, or once again, the Golden State Warriors. Kind of an incredible thing that you, that I don't think we're going to internalize until we get closer to the finals. It's not going to be the Lakers. It's not going to be the Super Team Clippers. It's not going to be your Bucks repeating again. It's not going to be the Super Team Brooklyn Nets. Am I forgetting any other uh, other big, the Philadelphia 76ers with Harden and Embiid? It's not going to be any of those teams. It's going to be the Celtics, Heat, Mavs, or Warriors. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. And I think the one thing that didn't disappoint that I, I've been thinking about for the last like five months now is like these semifinals are going to be incredible. Like you looked at the top eight standings, you're like, there's no way that this shakes out in a disappointing fashion. And it, it, it lived up to it. It lived up to its own hype. So I'm really excited that we got to see that. And I really wonder if you were to like take all of the bets like mid season for who is going to win the championship, like what slice of the pie included these four teams? Like, is it even 50% of all bets included these four? I'd be really interested to see that. Yeah, that's a good point. The The narrative machine is going to be working overtime in a few weeks because as we've discussed many times and my work over the years has mentioned this, there there is a connection between how people view the individual and the results of the team and not one of the top three MVP finishers. Actually, after Phoenix lost, not one of the top four uh, MVP finishers has made it to the to the. Sorry, because Phoenix has a has an All NBA first team top four finisher. Um, not one of them is in the final four. So it's going to be interesting to see. I, I'm already bracing myself for like whoever wins is going to probably be crowned the best player, and then what team does that come from? But uh, we are a long way off from that. It was it was an incredible weekend of hoops. Where where would you like to start? Would you like to look backward? Would you like to look forward? Do we need time for mourning for the Milwaukee Bucks, who I thought were uh, just fantastic? What do you want to do? Well, I want to talk about the Bucks at some point, but can we dwell on that top three MVP thing for a second? Just because I think this is a fun enough fact, even though it it seems like a lot of people are are uh, privy to this at this point. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so. The top three MVP finishers didn't make the conference finals. You know when the last time that happened was, Ben? 
Well, I do because you asked me the other day and uh, it was, I believe it was last year, even though I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, literally last year. Because I think the top three finishers were, who are they? They were Embiid, Curry, and uh, Jokic. And yep. Jokic, top three finishers. So two years in a row. You know the time before that was? Um, when was it, Cody? Was it, was it way back when? When was it? 2007 was the last time that uh, the top three MVP finishers were because that was uh, Dirk Nowitzki, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant, none mm. of whom made the uh, conference finals in 2007. So it's fairly rare. We usually have, to, to that point earlier I made, we usually have one of the kind of perceived best players in the league later on. And now we don't. And it's, of course, it's going to force the narrative machine to start discussing who's the new, who's the new king and face of basketball. Um, anyway, we'll, we'll cross that road when we get there. Definitely. So let's, uh, now that we got that out of the way, can we, can we, can we talk about it then? Can we, can we talk about it? Can we? Um, I can talk about it from a, from a non-Bucks fan perspective, which is that I think Milwaukee was a team that without Chris Middleton, um, well, without Chris Middleton, I think in the long run, did not have the advantage over the Celtics. I think the Celtics had a decent little margin of them over them. What was interesting about this series to me is I think the Bucks, especially with Brooke Lopez's presence in the paint, were able to play them much closer to even in the first couple games of the series. And then after that, I did the video on the uh, second half of game four. After that, the Celtics offense kind of opened up. The margin of victory after that was like something like plus 11 or plus 12 per 100 the rest of the way. And the game that the Bucs were able to steal to get that that third game to push it to a seventh game, they were also behind by double digits in the fourth quarter. And that game made a great run. So I think with Middleton, um, and home court flipped. And of course, there's a conversation to be had there because the Bucks gave away home court. They did not play for home court at the end of the season. And when you have a really close series, that's a big deal. I think those two things in the end were, were just too much for them. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about that part of it. I don't want to talk about that. That hurts. But there was actually somebody I, I saw. I don't know if they tweeted at us. I don't know if it was just on Twitter. I don't know if it just came to me in a dream. But um, I believe that there is a tweet out there that asked the question, does this outcome invalidate Bucks's approach? the Bucks' approach to defense, protect the paint, give up threes, how shooting and good shooting teams can break it up, things like that. And my take on this actually is that the reason that the Bucks had to sell out so much to protect the paint that they in the way that they did is because they were so outmanned this series. Like if there's one takeaway, like my takeaway is like, look, I am ecstatic that the Bucks pushed this to seven games because if we go back to game five, they shouldn't have won that. They should not have won game five. You, you run that game back a hundred times. They lose it 99 other times. Like the confluence of 1% events happening, uh, culminating in the two all time drew holiday defensive plays was just unbelievable. So the fact that it was pushed to seven is awesome. And when you are outmanned, and I think this is going to be a topic we bring up later, but when, when, when you are outmanned, you're going to have to change your strategy and you're going to have to try something new and inventive. And one of those things is going to be like, look, we can't beat you in like a regular strategy fight here. We're shutting off the paint. You have to prove to us that you can beat us this way. So I actually think that they had a strategy. It was a bold strategy and they executed it. I thought pretty well, given the circumstances. Yeah, I completely agree in the sense that your alternative every t like even once the Celtics kind of started to figure it out a little bit, your alternative is moving 
Lopez to the bench and then somehow playing small, but you don't have pieces that can do that. You're sort of out of weapons. I think you texted me um, at some point in the in the game yesterday about how you'd like to see Javon Carter come off the bench and get some minutes. And I was like, this is this is where you would like a guy that you can go to who maybe has some weaknesses, but it at least gives you an offensive option. And they they didn't really just have that. This is the lack of depth with the Bucks that I've talked about all year. So I think sometimes as analysts or fans, our reactions are a little too critical when you don't realize like there isn't a better thing, right? Um, so no, I don't think it, to the question, I don't think that invalidates that way of playing. I think it's something that we've been attuned to throughout the postseason that big men can get attacked and that if you don't have mobility or flexibility defensively, whatever that weakness is, teams will go after it if they can. Boston, um, I, I would describe the Celtics as having two and a half good offensive creators. Do you, do you buy that? Two and a half. But who, are, who are you counting here? Tatum, Brown, and Smart. Who's the half? Is Brown the half for you? I don't know if okay. Brown is the half or <laughs> Smart is the half, but it just feels like two and a half. It feels like they don't have three really good offensive creators, but they don't have two because you could get one or the other going on any given game or any given matchup and that matters whereas the Bucks, if if we look at these teams and we can compare them to a couple others in a second it felt like the Bucks were just Giannis and just Drew we talked about some numbers in last episode and um, as incredible as Giannis was a I thought fatigue added up and then B you're asking to the point about Lopez you're asking Giannis and Drew to specifically be the guys that do it on defense as well yeah, and when you think about, like, which, you know, Brown and Smart, they bring you two different things. Like, Brown had a couple of stretches throughout the series where, like, things were kind of stalling for the Celtics, and he just came out and hit, like, three, four shots in a row. Like, pull up mids, catch and shoot, taking it to the rack, and Smart kind of has more of the creation vibes. Like, he can set other players up more. Whereas, like like you just said, like, from what we saw in, in yesterday's game, if it wasn't Giannis doing it himself or even, like, Holiday getting in there, grabbing an offensive rebound, putting it back in. There just wasn't a shot going in past like 16 feet or something like that. And when when that's happening and no one else is doing anything, all you can really do is ram your head against the wall and then hope something changes. Right. And, you know, Derek White or Grayson Allen, they can have possessions where they get into the paint or create a little offense attacking a closeout or whatever. But I wouldn't put those. I'm thinking of we're in a playoff setting. Who can I rely on to do something at different times. To me, it's Tatum, Brown, and Smart for the Celtics, but the Bucks only had two of those guys. Um, if we can flip to the West, right? Yeah. I think the Mavs, interestingly enough, have three, three solid guys that fit that bill in Luka, Spencer Dinwiddie, and of course, our friend Jalen Brunson. Yeah, that three-headed attack. This is what I was talking about. It's like the dual heliocentrism. Wow, I said too many isms in there. But you have (laughs) Luca specifically when he's out there. But when the other two are out there, they can kind of do that together. But as we saw yesterday, too, like Dinwiddie himself, I mean, he had like a true shooting percentage of 93%, 30 points. Like, that's absurd. So when you have two guys that are dropping 30-plus points with that high of a true shooting percentage, oh, my goodness, you combine that with their defense in general. But you're absolutely right, and that's what makes them so tough is when the single player is creating so many dents and you're able to kick it out and put a team in rotation, you have a couple other players on the back end that aren't just going to shoot the ball. 
right? And this is something that I've harped on a few times is I, I, I sometimes am skeptical of players that are just shooters, that are just perimeter play shooters. You also want a player that can put the ball in the deck and be like, all right, now it's my time to get into the paint and do something. And the Mavericks have shown that they can do that. Okay, so here's my question. How many guys on the Phoenix Suns would you put in that category? Two and a quarter. Who's the is Who's the quarter? Is 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 campaign a quarter? Who's the quarter? Man, camp man. I I was thinking just to start it. I was thinking Bridges is a quarter. See, I don't think he's a quarter, and I think that was something. Um, the video will be up at some point. So if you're listening to this right away, there's no video yet, but there's a video coming on the Dallas defense in that series. And I think one of the things that makes it successful is. You take you essentially take away Paul or or limit his strengths, and then you push Booker off his pet actions. And any of these possessions where Phoenix had to run something through someone else, um, it's a little it's a little shaky. It's a little dicey. I actually feel, in the spirit of this conversation, that someone like Campaign is probably closer because Bridges can't he can't originate he can't self-generate as easily he's got to attack closeouts he's got to slash he's got to be in transition um Aiton Aiton needs someone to get him the ball he needs the right matchup he needs the right positioning he's not a great passer so it it feels like they only had two and this is just something I've been bouncing around in my brain in the last 24 hours because it to me is the offensive flip side of Hey, we're going to attack a big man. Hey, we're going to stretch you. Hey, we're going to be diverse in our offense. Well, if you only have one of these dudes, everything has to go through him. We know it's hard to have elite offense in in the NBA playoffs. If you have two of these dudes, things can go well. But the Bucs, for instance, going from three of those guys down to two really makes it much harder when you're playing strong defenses. The Suns only having two against a good Dallas defense that then could cater the scheme over the course of the series to really hone in on those two guys um we said the Mavs have three I said the Celtics have two and a half I'm interested to see how many you would give the heat but what fascinates me is I would say the Warriors have three and a half three and a half well first of all three and a half I want to go back to Bridges for a second because I think the reason I gave him the quarter there is when I'm comparing the Suns roster versus the Bucks roster he's at least able to attack on those secondary actions. He at least can get in. He has that nice little pull-up mid-range that he showed off throughout the season. He can attack, and he's he's really, you know, his length lets him attack the basket more. And Grayson Allen, Pat Connaughton, especially George Hill, like these are guys that were not able to do that sort of thing in secondary action. So I at least gave him a little bit of a boost there. So that's, that's why I said two and a quarter for, for the Suns. Okay, no, that makes sense. I understand. Now, what would you give the Heat? <laughs> okay, uh... Let, man, I don't, I don't know how I'm considering Bam on this, but uh, I guess two? two, two are, so is Butler one of them? Butler is one it of them. Are you, are you counting Kyle Lowry? Are, are we counting Kyle Lowry right now? I, I am not going to comfortably give this designation to Kyle Lowry here. Um, I just don't know what his health status is. Nope. I don't have a feel at this point in time. In May of 2022 which is three years since the championship, two years since the bubble, one year since the Tampa Raptors, and then this season with the in and out of the lineup constantly. The, what's, what's, what injury does he have? I can't even keep up with it. I don't know how old he is anymore. Is he, is he 40? Is he 32? How long has Kyle Lowry been playing basketball? I'm not going to count Kyle Lowry. I think what's interesting about the Heat is they have Butler, they have Bam, they have Tyler Hero, but 
I'm not sure any of them you kind of love in this category. Like even Butler, Butler's really interesting because there's just some nights where you're like, what's going on? Are you one of the three best scorers in the entire NBA? And then there are other games where that, that doesn't seem to be as easy for him to generate depending on the matchup. So I think it's Butler. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it, feels, it feels like maybe Hero and Bam are each a half person. In this two, maybe they get a two and a half or a two and a quarter. I, I don't know. So, first of all, I think a fun game to play, I don't want to play it, but if anyone listening wants to play a fun game, you describe either Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry, and the other person has to decide if you're describing Chris Paul or Kyle Lowry. <laughs> I, I think you, you were saying this, like, I don't know what injury he has, I don't know how old he is, but I'm like, oh. Anyway. Is, this like, is this like Dylan McDermott versus Dermot Mulroney? Is, that, is I, that what we're doing? I don't know what just happened. You don't know? Can you tell the difference between Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney? I, I can't. Um <laughs> Okay, the the so, Warriors. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. What are okay, you going to say? Okay, so going to the he actually answering your question now. I think the thing that's been interesting and the thing that I've I've been skeptical of a little bit. And I'm really excited to see them go against Boston now. After we saw uh, Boston do what they did with with Milwaukee's offense, is I never thought Miami was able to generate easy shots. Like Bam is a great big man passer. And he, in their system, he could generate great passes off the, the DHOs and off cutters and things like that. And Butler can get himself to the line. That's probably the most efficient thing he can do. But, like, Bam self-creating his own scoring, he kind of just, like, man, he likes that, like, fake left and go into the paint and hit a little fadeaway or maybe hit, like, a, a hook. But he's not, like, getting fouled all the time. He's not getting himself layups and dunks on his own creation a lot. So I really don't know. Like, if you were to tell me, like, 1.75 for them... Sure. I also don't know what any of these numbers mean, but 1.75 no. is where I land. I don't know what they mean either, but I agree with 1.75. That makes sense somehow for Miami. Butler is a 1, and then Hero and Bam combined are a 0.75. Um, I don't think I'm going to give any points to Gabe Vincent, although he's, as expected, had little playoff moments here and there. He and, he and Max Struess just doing Miami Heat things. One question I get all the time is, Ben, how can I break into working in basketball? Or what are the best ways for me to deeper my understanding of the NBA? And my immediate answer is always sports business classroom. That is the good stuff. Two of our Thinking Basketball team members are actually SBC grads. And it's an immersive program that takes place inside Summer League in Las Vegas, where you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, Zach Lowe, and more. This year's session runs from July 10th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's Thinking Basketball for $300 off. If you're interested, check it out today, sportsbusinessclassroom.com. The Warriors, they seem to be the team that has the most of these. And the reason why that's interesting is they're going to play the Mavericks in the conference finals. The Mavericks just had a masterclass in tightening your defensive scheme around an opponent 
and I can't remember how much I've talked about this publicly. I know we got into it in the in the Q and A last weekend for Patreon Deluxe subscribers, patreon.com slash thinking basketball if you want to listen to that whole thing and you're a subscriber. Um the Suns didn't really make any adjustments as far as I can tell. It's really hard to see any notable adjustments. And when we think about adjustments, for me, I think about lineup, I think about matchup, I think about X's and O's, pet plays, coverages on defense, mixing up mixing up defenses, whether it's zone or man or whatever. Whereas the Mavs, they kind of got steamrolled in the first two games defensively and then started to make a ton of changes and dialed those changes in even more and more and more as the series went on. Phoenix didn't react. And so Dallas, who had a good defense in the regular season, we did a video that covered a lot of their defensive strengths a couple months ago. They they played a great defensive series for the rest of the series, holding Phoenix's offensive rating way down in the final four or five games. But that's against the Phoenix offense, and that was catered for the Phoenix offense. So even though I like Dallas defensively, they've got Dorian Finney-Smith. They've got Maxi Kleba. Um, Reggie Bullock just played an awesome series. They're going to be facing a totally different type of offense. And not only that, but the way they honed in on the Suns was the Suns had two primary points of attack, two heads of the dragon, if you will. And the Warriors have multiple like you could you could still say well curry is this thing that constantly moves around and t- defenses focus on him but i mean pool plays similarly he can be a problem he can be difficult clay does get some gravity and you know he's a movement shooter and you don't want to leave him open so you especially don't want to leave clay thompson open on spot ups i think the one thing right now post injury clay thompson at this point is like his wide open catch and shoot stuff when he's in position must must be near the top of the league. Like you do not want to give him that shot. Yeah. So, so what I was going to say about the Warriors is is comparatively to how you stop the Suns is if if you take someone like Chris Paul out of the play and this is not a knock on Chris Paul again. This guy is what 37, 36, Who knows? He's he's somewhere in the high thirties. Thirty seven. He's yeah. thirty seven. So if you get the ball out of his hands. He's not going to create a ton of value, like sprinting off a lot of different actions. And he also doesn't have somebody like Draymond Green that can read his mind and get him wide open for those actions. So even though you can have someone like Bullock who's going to like pick him up full court, 94 feet sort of thing. Great. Curry's like, this is awesome. I'm going to go off ball and do my thing this way. Do the same thing to Klay Thompson. He's like, great. I'm going to run around baseline, come off these this double stagger, and Draymond Green's going to hit me right here, and I'm going to fire it away. And Jordan Poole, like you just said, he's excellent at doing this sort of thing too. So they're they're the rare team that's able to like get excited when you get the ball out of their hands. They're like, yes, this is our bag right here. This is my bag, baby. Like I'm ready to to fire <laughs> off some some wide open jumpers because you just can't guard a you can't guard that which isn't there, which is us not having the ball. What what strikes me and. It'll be interesting to see what Dallas comes up with. I think Dallas is going to borrow some some of the same principles. You know, Maxi Kleba's going to get minutes. He's going to be a switchable five. Dorian Finney-Smith is going to do his thing. He's extremely versatile. So you'll see some of the same things defensively in this upcoming series. But I do feel like they're going to have to dial in a new scheme. Because just take looking at film. Like, open up a clip from the last two series and look at how Dallas was able to set its defense against the Phoenix screening action, and then what happens off-ball, to your point, Cody, with those Phoenix players. Chris Paul, off-ball, was basically ignored in this series. Like, literally ignored. They did not care at all because Chris Paul was not cutting. 
he was not moving. And furthermore, once, if you were to swing it back to Chris Paul, if you're in a Devin Booker action, handoff action, pick and roll, whatever, and Booker or another player would swing that ball to the other side back to Chris Paul, 37-year-old Chris Paul at this point doesn't want to sit over there and take 10 catch-and-shoot threes a game, and he doesn't attack closeouts very well. So it's kind of the opposite structure. Then then go open up a single play from the Memphis series. And if you can find a play that isn't um, helter-skelter transition, which it feels like is about 50% of the plays in that series, if you can find a half-court play, you still see like Dylan Brooks standing in the corner, staring at Steph Curry's head, not watching the play. So he's 26 feet from the basket. He's completely out of the play. Um, the paint is wide open. Draymond Green... That's why I said like three and a half. I don't know how you want to handle Clay Thompson, but Draymond Green will pressure you. He will push the pace. He will get the ball and do something. That's a whole different animal than Jay Crowder or DeAndre Ayton or JaVale McGee on a swing pass or a short roll pass. That's basically not in Phoenix's diet. They don't eat short roll passing for dinner. Um, It's not on the menu. But with the Warriors, like this kind of tic-tac-toe, move, cut, handoff, move, space, move, screen, move, move, screen. Like, it's just going to be a different thing. So I don't know what to expect other than I think it's going to look different. There's something you said about Chris Paul that I really like, and I think this is a an important thing that we picked up on, especially during the Bucks celtics series. Not to keep bringing it back to there, but I think this is um, illustrative of what we're going to be talking about. So you said that Chris Paul doesn't want to stand in the corner and fire away 10 catch-and-shoot threes. But if we learned anything from the Celtics, like, the best off-ball players are going to do just that. Like, Grant Williams is going to fire off 18 three-pointers if he's open, and he better be ready to shoot 18 three-pointers because that's exactly what the Bucks are going to be giving them. That's exactly what the defense is going to do. And I think the... The war- Bucks are not going to be giving them that, the, Cody. I don't... The proverbial Bucks, the spiritual Bucks will be giving them to that. And if we think about the Warriors, like... You have a bunch of guys that are willing to take 18 three-pointers. Like, if you walk in there, like, who wants to take 18 three-pointers today? Jordan Poole is leaping out of his chair being like, me, oh, me, me, I want to do that. I want to do that. Yes, Jordan Poole will take 18 three-pointers in the first half. Um, and then once Clay sees him do that, he will try to take 18 in the first <laughs> quarter. So, yeah, that's what I mean. It's 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 going to be a very, very different thing. I'm excited to see it. I expect game one... Um, to really be the first game that looks very different. Now, the Warriors are usually like a slow building data collection. They're going to they're going to learn what they learn and then make changes. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on that side. For instance, is Kevon Looney going to start? And then if Kevon Looney starts, how much is Luka Doncic going to go after him because Luka um you know, Luke is a mismatch against a lot of people in the league, but he, starting earlier in the series, he's just like, well, let's just put Aiton or whatever big they have in pick and roll repeatedly, and if they want to switch, I will take that. If they want to drop, I will attack that on the fly, and you're going to get a floater, or you're going to get a lob for a dunk, and if you commit too many guys, I'm Luka Doncic, I'm just going to skip it. Kind of the opposite of the Suns guys, like, they had trouble making skip passes throughout the series, and the Mavs used that to their advantage by shrinking the floor, Luke is the opposite. If the Warriors, with that great, innovative, progressive defense that we highlighted earlier in the season on the YouTube channel, if they do that, Luka is the one guy who's like, ooh, skip passes. This is sort of the Luke, it's the Slovenian version of what you just did with Jordan Poole shooting open threes. He's like, ooh, how many skip passes do I get to make? Yeah, that's great. And I saw, I saw um, Mike De La Rosa 
uh, of thinking basketball just posted something on Twitter, a little video breaking this sort of thing about how the Mavericks are shrinking the court for the Suns and how, you know, the Suns are maybe short arming a bunch of these passes and making them a lot more uncomfortable. Like Devin Booker, you you put into a defensive chamber like that. And that's that's really not his his cup of tea. Like he's not going to be able to he's, he doesn't want to create in that situation. But like you said, Luca is just all about doing that. Can I ask you a question about adjustments, actually? Um. You can in a second. Let me fire off one more point about Booker that you reminded me of. Okay. That that there's so much that couldn't get into this video on this series. So many interesting wrinkles and dynamics in this series. But one thing that became apparent to me over the year, maybe one of the reasons why I wasn't quite as high on Booker as a lot of the the voters or national media, if you will, um, the Suns' offense has done a great job over this over the last couple of years, frankly, of. optimizing Booker, basically, like putting him in positions to succeed, playing to his strengths. All of those pet actions do that. If you if you limit those pet pet actions and remove the cozy confines of that offense, it's a lot harder for him to succeed. I think that essentially was what Dallas was building toward over the series. I think he had 24 turnovers over the last five games of the series and and 20 assists. Hmm. So, you know, you're really kind of putting him in an uncomfortable position and saying, okay, what are your counters? What are your counters as a scorer? Where I think off ball, he's been really delightful the last few seasons. And then what are your counters as a playmaker uh, or a passer? So, um, yeah, we I don't know how much more you want to get into discussing the coaching matchup in that series. Is that where your question was going? Yeah, it was going there. But yeah, with with Devin Booker, when you're talking about the counters, it seems like, and what, what really stands out to people and what does make him a good offensive player is he does have nice scoring counters. Like, he can always dip into that tough mid-range game where he scores some baskets, and that gives him a little bit of counters. But unlike someone that like Luca, he has that and the passing game. So it's like multiple levels higher than what we see from Devin Booker. But yeah, yeah, just to be clear on the scoring, uh, the point I was making, I think in this case, I would think about the mid range as adding dimensionality to his scoring or giving him a little more resilience. But in this case, what the Mavs were doing is they were if, if things broke down, it wasn't easy for Booker to, let's say, uh, turn his back to the basket at the elbow take two dribbles. He's not Kevin Durant generating his own mid-range. He's not Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan. It's not those style of mid-range shots. He's still getting mid-range shots out of those pet actions. And when you break those apart and then you put them on an island and then you're like, well, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to score in isolation against Maxi Kleba or Dorian Finney-Smith and we're going to have help in both your driving gaps. So you're not going to be able to get to the basket, which isn't even your strength anyway. Then those kind of like running, you saw a couple plays in the series where he was like looking for the foul call, falling backwards. That's what I mean. There's not a lot of counters to those. And I think that's what Dallas was able to attack. Okay, so I'm thinking about this in terms of uh, Phoenix's perspective. So we saw all year, like some of these pet actions, like all year now, we've seen them churning out a great offense and a great team with running Booker off Chicago actions, off Miami actions, getting downhill, being able to pull up, being able to make decisions off of those actions. And the, the Mavericks came out there and muddied that up significantly. So you're a team that's basically won 70 games and lost 20 across the last 90, right? You're a juggernaut. You were just in the finals last year. At what point, if you're Monty, Willi- if you're Monty yeah, Monty Williams? That didn't sound Monty Williams, Yeah, yes. that didn't sound right when I was saying it. Yes. Monty Williams. At what point are you like, you know what? We need to adjust this. Or when are you like, 
okay, this is kind of a fluke. We actually just should just keep running it because it's served us so well these last couple of years. Um, I think for this, I've taken a step back and have decided that it's probably likely that Phoenix is overachieving in the regular season in the sense that they're optimizing for the regular season. So you weren't talking about a world tour when you said Chicago and Miami. Those are handoff actions for Booker out of the corner with certain screening setups. They've got their plays that they love to run. Um, they have their system. Everyone, everyone fits in their roles. And I think if you, if you maximize that system in a way that has no flexibility, you create rigidity in that system, that's when you can optimize it, but only in a sense for the regular season. Because if you have no, if you don't sacrifice something for the regular season, if you don't sacrifice something in your roster construction that allows you to play different cards in the playoffs, then you're kind of stuck, right? And so I think to answer your question, um, I would have made the adjustments probably around game four. I mean, I don't know. I haven't coached 20 NBA playoff series, but I'm just saying on the outside from watching the film, uh, you could see these adjustments in game three. And then one thing you and I talked about, and I can't remember if we brought it up on the show, but game five, when I watched game five, the Mavs had won two in a row making these adjustments. And, it, and I started to say, it doesn't look like the Suns are making any counter adjustments, which is really interesting. And then they went in and they lost game five. But as I said, they lost it by seemingly just laying an egg and stop. Like they didn't attack in any of the advantages that they had presented in front of them. It wasn't a Phoenix adjustment necessarily that changed that. And then lo and behold, they go back and they play eight more quarters and they absolutely annihilated the Suns in, in the next eight quarters. Um, so as I said, I think you have to take a step back, at least for me to do the question justice, because it's one of those things that, the die may have already been cast months ago by not preparing to have different... Like, I don't know what you do with a 37-year-old Chris Paul. I don't know what you do with Booker at this point. I don't, I don't have a great feel for what the other adjustments would be because they may change the way the Suns play so much on offense that it's just not realistic to do on the fly. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And you may have made this comparison, but as you're talking, like, this just reinforces more and more that this actually sounds a lot like, like Budenholzer in, in Milwaukee, where yep. the, la- the last, you know, few years, he was so rigid in the way that he did this drive and kick game, the way that he did drop defense. 
until a certain point, I don't remember if it was last year or two years ago, when on defense specifically, they were like, all right, we're going to start, we're going to experiment with some switching a little bit more. We're going to try and factor some of this in. And I think they explicitly were like, we need to be prepared for these in the playoffs. And clearly it paid off, at least last year it did. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing right off the top of my, like, like immediate that I think they could have tried in Phoenix is just they have enough offensive players to go pure small ball. But it seems that Monty was just like, hey, we're a one through four switching team with a big. And whether it's whether it's DeAndre Ayton, JaVale McGee or or Bismarck Biombo, like Man. this is this is what we're riding with. Right. So just just stuff like that, where you would want to see anything, because I think it was a rare confluence events that game seven. I think Phoenix didn't shoot or play necessarily quite as well as they could have otherwise. I think the Mavs played incredibly. Now, some of that was probably getting the reps from the third game, the fourth game, the fifth game, the sixth. Like, they just were so dialed in on every action by game seven that there's that clip of Jason Kidd on the sideline just, like, yelling. Like, everyone knows exactly what everyone's doing because there's never any adjustment. There's never any counter. Um, Then they played well on offense, they didn't play well on offense in the first quarter, but then you got Dinwiddie, Luke is making shots, things started falling. And so you just had this incredible confluence of all these events combined with a series where the other team didn't seem to change and they could just figure it out more and more and more. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a crazy game. <laughs> it's, I like the way that you describe that because the way that the series played out, it's not like a typical chess match of a coaching match, right? Like, Kid came out and they made like maybe they made a couple of adjustments that were able to shut down what Phoenix did, and then there wasn't a counter move to that. So there That's wasn't, what it felt like. Yeah, there yeah. wasn't this one upsmanship. Whereas, I'm really interested to see with, with Kerr, you know, going against the, the Warriors next next round because I don't even know what kinds of adjustments do they do. I just feel like their offense is so just naturally counters out there. Like, I don't know what Curry would do differently. It'd be like, Curry, we're going to take you to the bench. Like, that's the only adjustment that I can think of. Well, he does, he's he's great with lineups. Um, he's great with changing matchups uh, and saying, defensively, we're going to try this guy. On. Like, like Kuminga started a couple games last series. And then when the veterans came to him and said, you know, let's go back to old reliable. Let's put size on the court. Kuminga doesn't play a minute. And you get these bigger games from veterans. I mean, even Damian Lee got in the game and things like that. So I think that's where Golden State almost lives on the other end of this spectrum where they, Kerr and that team, um, maybe not always in game one or two of a series, but they will go to a ton of different looks. And then to your point about the offense, the offense already has these built-in counters. That's the beauty of it. And so it's really just a matter of saying, hmm, all right, um, our off-ball split, you know, posting so-and-so and getting split cuts, they've done an incredible job changing that. Let's run Draymond Steph pick and roll. And then if some team has the equipment to somehow handle that, they go, hmm, let's run Draymond Steph pick and roll, but 45 feet away. And then if somehow at that point some team has the ability to handle that, they go, hmm, let's put Clay and Poole and Otto Porter out there as the center and let's see how, you know, it's like they can keep playing cards. And I think that's what makes them so dangerous still, even though they've underwhelmed a little bit for people. Um, yeah, that's, I, I think that's what makes me look at this series and expect the Warriors offense to, especially early in the series, still have success. And then to your point, they are going to have things to go to later in the series. So I want to talk defensively for Golden State because Luka 
Luca, man. Like, I, I don't know if I'd still put him above Trey Young offensively. <laughs> uh, that was a that was a joke, by the way. That's a joke. For, Please, yeah. If, if if you missed it, we had a, a heated debate months ago about um, Luca and and Trey Young, and and months later, despite all the evidence, Cody still believes that Trey Young is three or four times better on offense than. Luca, of course you don't. You must be so impressed with him at this point. Luca is unbelievable, just yeah, un unreal. Like Mikhail, like the talk before the this this matchup was like, oh, Mikhail Bridges on Luca. This is going to be so so fantastic to watch. And then and then Ben is Ben is breaking <laughs> down. Ben, what, what do you do? You want to interject? <laughs> no, I'm gonna. I, Cody, I just I it was such an entertaining weekend of basketball. I just lost it when you mentioned Mikhail Bridges because that he was second in defensive player of the year voting and while we disagreed with that at the time i just want to strongly suggest that no one ever do that again um and and just that's the that's the end of my rant because um i can you remember can you remember a series where you had an offensive juggernaut who ostensibly played the same position basically that the defender who's supposed to be this incredible defender is defending and then the man i mean you mentioned trey young i mean we had tissue paper out there like what first of all he switched off of him 700 times during the series and secondly i don't know what he did off ball to influence anything either it was like it was like going into the series i erroneously thought i can't wait to see this matchup and after the series i thought i wonder what this matchup would look like yeah and uh that's I don't want to. I don't want to dunk on him too much more. He was he was dunked on enough during. <laughs> no, he's also probably the most underrated player in the league. Um, but anyway, given my plus point two five for their offense, <laughs> did you give him a? Did you give him a quarter? I gave him a quarter. I gave him a quarter. So do you do you start Draymond Green on Luca right away? Is that where you go? Do you do that right off the the bat? I imagine we're going to see Wiggins mm. to start on Luca. Yeah, that that would be my guess. And I think I think knowing the Warriors and modern basketball, it takes a village. Um, you know, team defenses shut down great players, not individuals, especially someone like Doncic who uses so much pick and roll, whose counters are so pass heavy uh, in in the actual rolling action. Like when you go downhill, if you commit to him, he's going to hit Dwight Powell on the lob, stuff like that. And if you overload to him, we've seen we've talked about the Celtics doing it with Durant. You saw it in this series. We're going to shrink the floor. We're going to bring pre rotate a guy over. Um, Luca would love to swing it and make skip passes and torch you all day. So I think Draymond and the brains of that defense, Steph Curry included, who is a communicative, smart, off-ball, weak side defender in the passing lanes, I think those guys have to play a big role in helping to slow down the way they kind of set this offense up. And then I think you'll see Wiggins. I think you'll see Klay Thompson for possessions. Um, Draymond, of course, is the wild card because I think there are times that you might be able to go to him. But look, Dallas, if they put Draymond on him, Dallas is just going to screen him. So I'm I'm really not convinced that, you know, that's necessarily something we're going to see a ton of because of that. And and on that side of the ball, even more than Luca Cody, I'm interested in how much we see that five-out open paint structure and how it, it feels different or the same than prior series, right? Like against Dallas... It just feels like their pants are down. 
It's like it's like oh man, that paint is wide open, and they oh no, they swung it to they swung it to Dinwiddie, and now he can just go by. Oh no, they swung it to Brunson. Now Brunson can go by somebody. There's 25 feet on either side for them to play with. I'm interested to see if they can basically create that same geometric advantage against the Warriors defense. So I think this brings up an interesting conversation about Aiton because I've heard a lot of conversation about Aiton uh, getting toasted one on one things like this. I feel like every time I saw. Luca get the Aiton switch, he wasn't blowing by him for the layup. Like, he was taking him into the mid-post and getting a fadeaway. I saw, like, multiple possessions in a row hitting, like, a step-back three. And in my mind, my first reaction is, like, that's actually pretty good defense for Aiton. Like, if, you, if you're getting Luca to take a step-back three, like, that's, that's okay in my book. But defensively, defensively, the thing where the, the Warriors are going to be able to get a step up without having to play a big like the Suns so dogmatically did during this series is that they can rotate so much quicker. Like if you if you load up strong side, if Lucas on a specific side, you can do that and still have the foot speed to recover out to the perimeter better than I think somebody like Aiton, like Biombo, like McGee might be able to. So I think that's going to be something that I'm going to see is how do you how do you play around with these smaller, quicker defenders that that can load up a specific side and also can recover out to shooters the length strength athleticism quickness of the grizzlies has given the warriors problems in the last few seasons which is why i thought that series would look different than the first round series against the nuggets for golden state and then john morant specifically as a head of the snake it's quickness 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 so if you can create the space then you can get plays like Jordan Poole going into the spin cycle and not knowing where where he's going um, as jaw drives and turns and twirls and things like that. Luca's attack is totally different. Luca's attack, as you said, um, isn't just about speed. It's about getting to a step back. It's about power. It's about tempo and patience and moving into the lane, comfortably keeping your dribble alive and going, well, I'm going to pat. No, I'm still dribbling. No, I'm going to shoot. No, I'm still dribbling. Oh, up fake, up fake, up fake. That's a totally different thing. And so all of that is to say, I don't think you'll see Jordan Poole or one of those kinds of defenders, even like a Curry, get blown by in this space, although they're still going to have to deal with Jalen Brunson. That's going to be a really interesting kind of secondary matchup. If Again, if they can create that geometric advantage and get, get a guy like that in space. Um, but what happens when Lucas starts backing them down? Does he go to the post more? Th- things like that. What ha- what happens with Looney in this series? Is he going to just attack Looney and will Kerr go away from it? I mean, those are hard shots, but Luca has also... <laughs> Look, let's not beat around the bush. Luca has it. Oh, yeah. He has it. Oh, yeah. He gets in the playoffs. He gets in game seven. And whatever your shot quality model says, it needs to be adjusted up 10% because like that step back three, all of a sudden, you can just see it in his face. I don't know why it doesn't make... It, I guess it makes sense because... You know, that's how humans are, but it goes from like 33% in my head to like 37, right? So if if he gets that rhythm on Looney, I've seen him do this. Um, Clippers fans, you know, know this well with even the Zubots. Like there were games in the last year or two where he's just switching on to Zubots and you you would look at it and you go, well, the shots weren't that great. Well, he, he didn't blow by him more than once or twice. Yeah, but he scored like 27 points in 10 possessions. So yeah, I'm just fascinated. 
And going to his post game, like I, I, I want to stick on this for a second because I, I feel like some of the the most indelible offensive moments from Luca was when he got the Chris Paul switch during this last series, where it was just a physical flying elbows everywhere, like Giannis light sort of situation, just reveling in that in, in that sort of position. But I think one thing that's going to give the Mavericks almost an edge in this matchup is the Dinwiddie Brunson combo because i don't know i don't think the warriors like if there's a sort of offensive player that the warriors might struggle with i think like you just said with the grizzlies it's going to be a shorter quicker guard and i don't know about anyone that's really going to be able to rotate out especially on a secondary action and slow down quickly enough to contain a guy like dinwiddie or brunson so uh again that's the push and pull like we're going to be seeing luca dial up that that shot quality to 37 percent, but we're also going to be opening up the shot quality for his teammates because he's putting them in prime position to attack a team that's not necessarily built to defend them we could we could probably talk about this series for another hour do you want to uh get to the eastern conference finals before we get out the door today wow we still have the east to talk about well we've we've talked about it a little bit we just haven't actually thought i mean we don't know how you feel about miami no one knows how i feel about miami um you know there's this there's the matchup with the celtics you know what do you what do you think I feel like, man, if I were a Heat fan, I feel like I'd be annoyed with us because we always dance around the Miami conversation. We never have I'll, it. And I'll be honest, I, I don't know how to talk about Miami. I just, I legitimately don't know what to think about them. I'm equally always, like, really impressed with what they're doing. I love watching Miami play. They're, they're like, top five watch for me. I just love watching their defense go. But I just don't understand them. I don't know how they're going to compete against high-level defense. So that's why I don't talk about them. I, I've been very mad at Miami this season for constantly getting injured and changing players. It's derailed many video plans that I've had about them. And then the whole year goes by and the Heat fans are like, you must hate Miami. You never make a video. I'm like, you have no idea how many videos get scrapped. And videos typically get scrapped by like weird things happening with teams and injuries. And that I can't figure them out either. Uh, well, I shouldn't completely say that. I have some feel for both their offensive and defensive level. I certainly know how they like to play. It doesn't surprise me that Max Struess uh, and even Gabe Vincent have had good playoff minutes. But I, as we said earlier in the show, I don't know what to make of Kyle Lowry right now or him coming back in a series of this level. Like the My one takeaway, and we've talked about it, I think, a little bit in the last couple weeks, is first round, second round, I feel like I'm learning a lot. That Celtics-Bucks playoff series that was some seriously high level stuff and the Celtics defense I'm just going to keep coming back to it they look like they're going in my all-time historical level defense I think their relative defensive rating in the Bucks series was minus 13 or minus 14 now of course the Bucks are missing Chris and that's part of it but I mean when you hold a team over a seven game series in in 2020 and they have Giannis playing the way Giannis played to a 101 offensive rating or whatever, 103, whatever the final number was. Um, and, and by the way, what would it have been if Giannis were merely mortal? <laughs> I mean, Giannis is out there in, in you know, game uh, game five, draining two for two from three-point land, Cody. Yeah, so, it's unbelievable yeah. that Luka's had the playoffs that he's had, and it's still not for sure that he's been the best player in the playoffs. Uh the man, we, maybe we should wrap up with playoff MVP 
uh, discussion because the league said they're going to have Eastern Conference Finals and Western Conference Finals MVP this season and going forward the Larry Bird Trophy and the uh, Magic Johnson Trophy, which is kind of cool. I thought that was really fun that they named him after those two guys. Your facial expression is making me think you haven't heard. Did you not hear this announcement? <laughs> I have no idea what you were saying. Yeah, I was yeah, just going to go with it. Yeah, they're having this is not a joke. They're having Eastern Conference Finals MVP and they're calling it Larry Bird um, or the Larry Bird Award, I should say. And the same in the West for the Magic Johnson Award. So that got me thinking at some point, um, who has been if we gave out a first two round MVP of the playoffs right now, who who would you pick or certainly who would be the candidates and the guys that you would think of? I, I guess let's limit it to the players who have only played in both the first and the second round, uh, sort of what would your playoff MVP ballot look like? I think at the tippy top, I don't, I don't know. You're going to have to pick between them, but I think Giannis and Luca have to be at the top. I don't know if you give Luca the bump because they won, but uh, to me, they're, it's, they're unassailably number one and two. Unassailably? Unassailably. Wow. Can you make the case for somebody else to get in there? Devin Booker? I've, <laughs> oh, you got me with that one. You, yeah, you got me so good. I think, I think the only two other guys that I would make the case for would be Tatum and Butler in, in the Eastern Conference Finals that we're looking at. Um, and I'm really fascinated to see Butler against this defense because he's such a unique kind of offensive player for someone who doesn't really shoot a lot of threes in today's game, really big, the way he uses his body, the way he picks his spots. And so I, I think at this point, I would be just stunned Maybe, maybe don't like, maybe I'm not saying it's impossible. Like I I could see it somehow happening. I just can't figure out how he would do it. I would be stunned if Jimmy Butler could continue the similar scoring numbers to what he's put up in the first two rounds. If anyone hasn't been keeping up with this, Butler 30 points per 75 possessions on plus 7% true shooting in the first two rounds. That's one of the best uh, statistical scoring profiles of the postseason, And yeah, Tatum, Tatum's also been great. They've both been great in terms of plus minus the team's offense when they're on the court, uh, decision making, passing. Those I think would be the only other two guys, and I'm I personally wouldn't I personally would not try to mount that much of a strong argument over Luca or Giannis. No, and and when I think about Butler going against Boston, I feel like Boston is set up really well to defend somebody like Jimmy Butler. Like he he sort of is the. The, the player archetype that plays into the kind of guy that you'd like to play. Like Marcus Smart could definitely switch on to him. Jason Tatum's obviously the same kind of build. Even like he's probably not going to be blowing by somebody like Daniel Tice or Al Horford much at all. But the one thing I think that's going to make it interesting that the, the Bucks couldn't do is I don't think the Heat would at any point go four for 33 from three. Like the auxiliary guys I think will perform better than Milwaukee's did down the stretch. Well, I think that's roster construction, though. Um, I mean, in the same way that it kind of bothers me or or doesn't sit well with me when coaches after the game look at free throw shooting as a way to complain about the officials with this assumption that both teams are supposed to take the same number of free throws, um, that it's just very strange. Similarly, when when people say... uh, oh, this team shot 25% in this game, or they went four for 33 from downtown. It's like, yeah, that's going to depend on the guys shooting the shots as well. Uh, and, and in the case of the Bucs, they've, of course, tried to have some shooting out there. But one, the quality of the shooters taking those shots, 
I th- well, they were fourth for 33 in game seven. Is that what you're yeah, citing? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not going to necessarily be necessarily be the same quality of the shooters that a team like the heat always want to have out there. And two, in that particular case, a lot of the shots were contested or late in the clock, or you've had to run around and you're, well, we've talked about this before. You're in an uncomfortable position relative to your normal cozy corner three, where you can, you know, have a sandwich before you shoot it. And it's, it's, it's really nice and easy. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with you, but I think that's the way Miami is built. I'm interested to see, can, can Marcus Smart guard Butler? I mean, he's so good at using his body down at the post. On the flip side, do they just put someone like Tatum on him? And Tatum has just been, Tatum's been almost surreal defensively in this postseason. And if he can do his two-way thing and and kind of take away some of Jimmy's pet actions and strengths and limit his post touches and things like that, or limit, limit his scoring in the post, I should say. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, but I, I still don't have a great feel for this series overall in the same way that we just broke down um, the Western conference finals. But the one thing on my head that I still keep coming back to is how, how can Miami score enough to keep up with Boston? I think, I think in some sense, the national audience will will be underrating Miami and be impressed by how competitive they are. But it also feels like, man, that Celtics defense just gives them a margin of error to work with. Yeah, I think that hits it on, hits the nail on the head there. So we have our our top four MVPs. Can I can I get you to pick a fifth? Is this for playoff MVP? Yeah, playoff MVP so far. We have four. Who's number five? I I I think number f- if we're gonna stick with the two round thing, I. Th- I might go Curry number five. Yeah, funny. I was leaning that way. I also looked at Al Horford for a second, and I thought, can I can I say Al Horford right now? Am I allowed to say that? I, he's been he's been fantastic, but yeah, it's it's fine. We'll we'll allow you, Al Horford. Um, anything else before we get out of here? Picks? Do you want do you want to pick? Do you want to pick uh, winners? You could even be saucy and tell me how many how many games. Everyone knows how I feel about this series. I don't, I, we, don't, we don't need to actually say it out loud. Everyone knows. Um, if you want to support this channel, head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball uh, channel. This is, this is a podcast, Cody. This, this isn't a channel. You're, you're, here to, you're here to help me out with these things. Um, we, have a, we have a ton of extras and additional content. And that, that live Q&A from last weekend uh, was, I thought, just fantastic. A ton of, a ton of thoughts on the Western Series, among, among other things. Patreon.com slash ThinkingBasketball. Remember to check out SportsBusinessClassroom.com. Enter the code ThinkingBasketball for $300 off. Uh, and that is it for this one for Cody. Thank you so much for listening all the way until the end. And of course, hope you are enjoying the playoffs, geared up for the Western Conference and Eastern Conference Finals, and that you are having... A great day.